The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I have the pleasure of sitting down and I think doing maybe the first interview in my office um, with a gentleman who I've come to know and love. I just had lunch with him, Kim Hunter. Kim is the CEO and founder of three different organizations, um, two of which share a similar name, but LeGrant Communications, TLF Associates, and then the LeGrant Foundation, which is one that we are working closely with on a lot of our diversity uh, initiatives. So welcome, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. And I have to tell you, you and I have tried a few times to make this podcast interview happen. So nice that we are finally able to do that. Um, the reason we are here today is because you were participating in a executive roundtable uh, that we hosted. Uh, the Homes Report put on, Arthi Shaw and Mark Stoos of Proof uh, sponsored. We'll get into that in a minute. But I would like to talk a little about, bit about your background. And we get to dig into this a little bit at lunch before this. You have... You've done a lot of things, right? And, and what I'll tell you is I know what your age is because you told me, but you look like you're maybe late 30s, early 40s. You're a so good man. It's hard to believe that you've squeezed all these things. But um, in looking through your background, things like adjunct professor, uh, VP of marketing and comms at the American Cancer Society, commissioner for LA's uh, Animal and Cultural Affairs Department. Those are two different departments, the Animal Affairs and Cultural Affairs uh, you've run your own business for the last 27 years, or businesses, I should say. Um, and I think you were at a company called Baxter, sort of back in your earlier days. So, you know, as a guy that's lived dog years, you know, multiple lives, uh, and still looks very young. Talk a little bit about your journey to, you know, where you've come to today. Well, a lot of it has to do probably with my upbringing. I'm one of 11 children, uh, which a lot of people do not believe, um, but part of it was I grew up. I have to ask, so where in the pecking order do you fall? I'm number nine. Oh, so okay. I'm at the tail end, which goes against all statistics in terms of where I am today. They say the, the, the oldest ones tend to move through their lives more successfully. Well, I, I, went against all, I went against all research, and I was on the tail end. So I'm what they call the oldest of the last set. So I have two brothers um, after me. Both my parents were uneducated. They did not finish high school. I'm one literally in the entire family with a college education. I'm one of the few with a high school degree. Um, but I always tell people education was the centerpiece of who I am, hence the reason why um, I make that the signature for everything else. Because I always believe that if you educate a human being, they give you things in life that allows you to question that critical thinking component and ask questions in the marketplace, regardless of what political affiliation, what your gender, what your ethnic group, it allows you to think. And so for me, education is the fundamentals of who I am. It circles everything around. And it's one of my firm's CSR initiatives, Corporate Social Responsibility. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia, went to undergrad in Seattle, Washington. I went from Seattle, recruited off campus by then Baxter, moved me to LA into market research, then moved me to the Twin Cities into sales, sales management, and then moved me back to LA into market management. So during that, those seven years, and it's seven years, um, I learned that corporate America um, can be uh, one of the most dysfunctional organizations <laughs> on the planet Earth, 
and it could also be one of the most rewarding. For me, it was both. Um, I went through an acquisition uh, period. It was one of the beginnings of the acquisition movement in the early 80s. And I saw some of the brightest people get let go. And I saw some of the not so bright people stay. Um, and I just said, this is not good. I need to go out and work on the agency side. Did that. And then it just came to an epiphany in 19, literally, 1990, I said, it didn't matter whether it was a big Fortune 200 or a small boutique firm, because I went from Baxter to ICANN, International Communication Advertising Network, and then one of my own. So you're right, I've been running my own business for 27 years, particularly the agency. Um, all three of the organizations, the, the theme is multicultural. Clients hire me based on that component, and multicultural is not what it is perceived in the marketplace. I view multicultural beyond ethnicity. So it's gender, it's sexual orientation, it's um, physically challenged, it's all of that, not just the ethnicity. Which I like a lot, and I think a lot of people do sort of under, probably represent or sort of get too narrow with that. Um, and we do have the pleasure of working with you, and again, we'll talk about that in a minute. But talk maybe a little bit more specifically about um, the Lord Grant Foundation and maybe get into, you know, we did a nice blog post. I did an interview with uh, four of the interns slash fellows, one of which now is a full-time employee. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the LeGrant Foundation and what you do and then maybe bridge that into the relationship that we've created over the last few years. Sure. Well, one of the probably biggest joys, Aaron, is that the LeGrant Foundation will be celebrating 20 years in existence in 2018. I still can't believe it's 20 years. But how that came to fruition, um, I was on the phone with a reporter in 1998, and the reporter was asking me a lot of questions about Kim, why do you think the industry is not as diversified as it should be? And I heard myself saying the same old thing, and I said, you know what, I gotta get off the phone. I need to call my attorney and my CFO to really have a dialogue, because I'm asking the industry to make changes, and what is pretty obvious, they need some help. And what happened was, I wound up starting the LeGrand Foundation because I said, I can't put this on anyone else. Own it, do something about it, but what it taught me was, I am a serial entrepreneur. Obviously, I've created three separate enterprises, three separate P&Ls, and I decided to do something about it. So w when you talked about all three of my enterprises in the beginning, the one that you focused on, which is very indicative of the industry, is ironic. It's the only not-for-profit. My two bookends, LaGrant Communications and KLH and Associates, are my for-profits. But where my brand is built is on the not-for-profit side. So what it tells me, I created a need in the marketplace um, to help organizations, whether it's the Fortune 500s or the top 10 PR and advertising agencies, to diversify their organizations. So for me, um, at the end of the day, my labor of love is clearly the not-for-profit, but really where I get my juices is really sitting in a room with CMOs and CCOs and CEOs and solving their business issues. And their business issues could be beyond advertising, PR, and marketing, which is my expertise. That's great. And then let's let's talk a little bit about how we've started working together. And one of the things that you've done a great job is giving us a diversified pipeline of talent that do fall across a variety of different sort of categories that you mentioned earlier. But, you know, for those listening in, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Well, um, how I would you asked over lunch, how did I meet Jim? Well, Arthi is the one who made the introduction years ago, but I finally got to meet Jim live, Jim Weiss, that is the founder of the organization in New York at the PR Week judging. 
And that's when we connected with one of the common bonds. And it's typical of an Easterner, as you know, um, being an Easterner on the West Coast, um, there is a gravitas of where you have an identification. And for me, Jim was born and raised in Pennsylvania. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia specifically. Um, and I said, Jim, I want to be able to help W2O Group be a, what I refer to is to position as a 21st century agency. Because let's be honest, you cannot really have sustainability long-term if in fact you're not having a workforce that reflects your client's consumer base. So that's when Jim decided to partner. We've formed the first and only to date, the first healthcare fellowship program between W2O Group and the LeGrand Foundation. And as you know, we sourced um, candidates and we put three in the W2O network, two in um, New, um, San Francisco and one in New York. And then you, to your point, you hired a full-time body in the Chicago office. So it is truly a joy when I see that happen more than anything else. And what I like, and you saw the, the actual outcome of the evaluations, all four, we'll, we'll take out the full-time employee, the actual three fellows, plus the one that's a combination of W2O Group and Medtronic, one of your largest clients, because we placed that person in the Minneapolis office, all had positive experiences. And that is what it's about, it's about exposure. They don't know what they don't know. And I like the fact that W2O Group recognizes that there is a, a network of talent out there in the marketplace and they want it. Yeah, and you've done a great job at helping us with that. So thank you and we look forward to a continued partnership on that front. Um, you mentioned Arthi, and Arthi is Arthi Shah, right? And she is the COO and a journalist for The Homes Report. Uh, we did an executive roundtable today, as I mentioned, and the the topic was the agency of the future. And I think you actually just touched on one of the things, but um, one of the questions that she asked was around diversity. Uh, we had a couple of clients there, uh, meaning people that were sat brand side and then several agency folks and then uh, folks that were kind of in the middle. And, you know, I think it was a heat, not heated, but passionate discussion. And you actually brought up a couple of really good points um, do you mind sort of doing a little bit of a redux on what you touched on? And, and certainly you can frame it however you want to frame it. But I appreciated that it was almost like Khrushchev pounding his shoe on the, the uh, lectern of the UN. But I loved your passion around the particular topic and a little bit of, I would say, frustration around, I think, a lot of companies, particularly agencies, ability to understand this topic fully and understand the importance of why we want to do it. It's not just because of a, like we're a little league baseball club and like, let's all play nice, but there's an economic benefit. There's a strategic benefit. Um, but I will shut up and let you answer the question. Well, the bottom line is diversity and here's the operative and inclusion DNI, um, is a business imperative. And it is those leaders who clearly get it. And I mean, get it, not having the client drive it so much. And that's the tragedy of it all. Where you, I have always said, if you go back and Google many of the interviews I've had in the early 90s, in the early 2000, 2001, 2002, I said, our industry, the communications industry, will only change when you have true leadership saying we need to diversify our workforce. Our workforce cannot be homogeneous. It's got to be more diversified. It cannot be monolithic. Um, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of how you look, in terms of um, your thinking, because you're gonna bring a diverse set of 
new ideas to the table because my experiences as an inner city kid growing up in Philadelphia is going to be different from your experience growing up in the New England area. But that's a good thing to have us all in a room and we can agree to disagree. But clients want brain trust that is going to bring a different set of creative and innovative thought to the table. Um, so for, the, for me to address some of the, uh, the topics that were discussed, and I'm gonna use the term um, impatient, and this is a colleague and dear friend and a board member of the LeGrand Foundation to ride Neptune at Lenovo. The bottom line is we are not frustrated with the lack of diversity, we're impatient. And as a result of being impatient, now we're going to put people on notice that at the end of the day, if you don't do what we refer to is the right thing, you will be at risk of losing business, you will be at risk of gaining new business, you will be at risk of survival <laughs> at the end of the day. And if it takes leadership to do that, I say more power to you. Well, one of the things I like about that, and you did mention that, and Tarot is certainly a very a brilliant guy, nice guy, has been a client, hopefully he'll be a client again someday. Uh, the nuance in those words, if you think about it, so frustrated to me means... There's something blocking you and you may or may not be able to impact that. Impatient means you know that there is going to be a change. It's not happening as fast as you would like. So it feels like it's a much more proactive, forward-thinking word. So I love the way you two are, are uh, helping to define that. So speaking of passion, you're a very passionate guy, which I really appreciate. Uh, we've talked a lot about you know your ventures and what you focus on. We talked about the diversity piece. What else are you passionate about? You know, what are some things that maybe either personally or professionally that you're spending energy on these days? As I mentioned to you, education is number one. So when you look at who Kim Hunter is, education is number one. Number two is healthcare, and number three is arts and culture. And those three are when you look at what defines who I am as a person. It's those things. Education, get an education. I don't care if it's in anthropology. And I use anthropology, Aaron, because I have 42 credits of anthropology from undergraduate school at the University of Washington in Seattle. Because I believe anthropology and cultural anthropology, which I have many of those credits in, allows you to be thrust in so many different environments that makes you uncomfortable. I grew up in the inner city of Philadelphia, and when I went from Philly to Seattle, you're talking about a culture shift, but I embraced it. It wasn't, I was fearful. And that's the, that's the mindset, I'm just, it, it breaks my heart to see people not wanting to be around people that don't look like them, don't act like them. I like a diversity of thought, and you and I can agree to disagree and go out and have a drink afterwards. But you don't have to be mean-spirited about it or evil about it and tear people down. Um, so education is number one. Number two, healthcare. I, I, I have a simple philosophy that in the day that if we're not in good physical, physical and mental shape from a healthcare perspective, we're not going to be able to move the needle. So healthcare is very near and dear to me. So when you look at many of the organizations I've been involved in, the American Cancer Society, I sit on a corporate $2 billion board, Scan Health Plan, that is a, a, is a Medicare Advantage program for seniors 65 and older. And then three, what really rocks my world is arts and culture. So I love theater. I'm a theater enthusiast. Um, I love arts. I'm involved with the Santa Barbara Arts Museum. I'm involved with Ensemble Theater, which is in Santa Barbara. And I say Santa Barbara because I have a home in Santa Barbara, so I spend as much time as I can um, when I'm not traveling in those markets. And at the end of the day, my rationale with those three, what I call corporate social responsibility, is that if you have an educated 
society and workforce, they'll take better care of their health. And then if they take care of better of their health, they'll enjoy the arts and culture of society. So those three things, and I tell people, define who you are. You can't be all things to all people. Those three are mine, and I don't come outside of those for any of my three enterprises or me personally. Well, and I love the clarity you have around those, and certainly you could do worse than those three initiatives, right? So, uh, or those three uh, areas of passion. So thank you for sharing that, Kim. Um, last two questions, and these shift a little bit more to you personally, although I guess that last one was a little bit on the, the personal, what drives you. So one, I like to know who's influencing the influencers, right? Or who has influenced the influencers? And that could be a person, it could be a business book. So let's talk about that, and then I have one more fun question, which has to do with music. Well, it's interesting. The the people that probably have influenced me, it's not people so much as it is media. Now, people say, well, Kim, did you know you wanted to be in the communications industry? The answer was not really growing up in the inner city. What I did know was the power of media allowed me to see and hear things that I probably was not exposed to that I wanted to have an impact. So there's not a particular person so much that has had an impact on me. But from an entrepreneur standpoint, I do think of people like Steve Jobs, um, who built Apple. And, and there's something about entrepreneurs. They're very driven. They're very focused. And oftentimes, they're they can be so driven and so focused that people focus more on the negativity of who they are as opposed to the good that they have brought to society. And I think Steve Jobs is one of them. The second one is Bill Gates. Um, the two are very much similar in terms of who they are as entrepreneurs, but the difference is, from my perspective, is that Bill Gates understood giving back. What Steve Jobs' vision was giving back is, I created a technology that will live on forever after I'm gone. He is absolutely correct. But it breaks my heart to know that this man built I'm an Apple guy. I've been running apples in my computer in my I'm coming for 27 years. So we have the iPhone, the iPad, the um, the laptops, the 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 desktops. All of that is Apple within my organization. But when you think about what has Apple done in terms of changing the evil or changing the bad or making good in society, aside from the technology, I, look, none of us can live without it today. But it, it tells me there was no there there with Apple as it is with Microsoft, where Bill and Melinda Gates created the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where they give away majority of their wealth, helping out countries. And one of their key initiatives is education. You know, it's interesting. You hear those names a lot. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought about the difference in them being that charitable component, although as you were saying, that made sense. I do wonder aloud, and I think the answer is probably no, but had Steve Jobs lived longer, uh, would he have come to that at some point in his life? And I think you're saying you don't believe that he would have, but you never know, right? Because uh, what was he, his early 60s when he... No, early, he was in his late 50s. Late 50s. Yeah. So he did have a little while yeah. to go, and sometimes it takes people to get a little bit of a kick in the ass before mm -hmm. they finally uh, make that jump, right? Yeah, but I, I don't, I, you know, I, I guess I struggle with any successful business person, whether it's a Martha Stewart or a Bill and Melinda Gates or a Steve Jobs or Warren Buffett. But when you look at the Warren Buffetts of the world and a Steve Jobs, they're giving the majority of their wealth back. Then you look at a millennial called Mark Zuckerberg. He and his beautiful wife is making a decision to give their money back. But I don't understand. It's just if it's not in your DNA, it's not in your DNA. And I never thought that was a part of who Steve Jobs was as a person. And he, he went to his grave 
being recognized as a brilliant tech guy, but not necessarily a compassionate person. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And like I said, that's an interesting thought that I had never explored. So um, thank you for bringing that to, to bear. So last question, and this is one where I do like to ask all of our guests. This is uh, a fun music question, but imagine yourself on a deserted island. Uh, and this was interesting because I got to do an interview with a guy named Adam Klein who was on Survivor in one Survivor on a deserted island. So I actually got to really uh, have some fun with that. But um, imagine you can only have one album that you can listen to forever. Which album would that be and why would you pick it? It's interesting. I, I cannot tell you an, uh, a name of an album per se. Well, there's several out there that I could think of, but they wouldn't be the one that I would pick. Now, I'll give you a one of my security questions for TSA <laughs> when it says, what is your favorite music? My favorite music is R&B, rhythm and blues. And people say, really, Kim? And I said, yes, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And R&B was what I grew up with. And so when I hear The Temptations, The Four Seasons, The Supremes, um, Dinah Ross, um, Smokey Robinson, those songs resonate with me. And I can give you a context. The movie um, Dreamgirls that came out uh, about five, six, seven years ago, that is the only movie, movie in my life, Aaron, that I paid to see it nine times. I'm a movie freak. I live in the movie capital of the world that called Los Angeles. But that is the one movie I resonated with because it told the story of African-Americans moving from the inner city into the music industry. And I learned a lot about the music industry and particularly how many of the artists then made money by having their residuals on radio. Um, but it was the music. Even if I were to hear R&B today, my body <laughs> goes into spasm in a positive way. And I use shows like Murphy Brown. I have to remind people when Murphy Brown, the show was on during the George W. Bush um, one years into the Clinton early years, the theme songs of the Murphy Brown show were all Motown music. And there was a reason for that because I'm a baby boomer. Um, yes, you are right. I'm old. I'm 56 years old. That's what I grew up with. And that's what I know. And to hear the music and to listen to the lyrics, it, it just takes me into a whole new world. So if I can listen to anything else, whether it's on the beaches of the Tahiti or the beaches of Brazil, I'm the happiest man in the world just listening to R&B. So note to self, Kim gets his own uh, Pandora station and it's the R&B Pandora station. And I think we know how to fine tune it. Uh, I will say, first of all, thank you. This was as entertaining as I had hoped it would be after all these tries to get together. So uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group. I am the host of the What's Know podcast. And today we had the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Kim Hunter, who is the CEO and founder of LeGrant Communications, TLF uh, Associates, and the LeGrant uh, Foundation as well. Did I get all three of those right? LeGrant Communications? LeGrant Communications. TLF is the LeGrant Foundation. Oh, the foundation, got gotcha. And then KLH and Associates. And I probably botched that at the beginning. So I thought you had said the KLH, which are your initials, clearly, Associates. So anyway, now we've got them clear. Thank you, Kim. This My is pleasure. a true pleasure. You got it. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.